For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in the newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. These are challenging times, and we respect your unwavering commitment to your students. At Amplify, we are working especially hard to support you. And as we all grapple with what it means to focus on the science of reading in a new world of remote learning, we're committed to walking with you through the unknown. Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. Join us as we talk with experts to explore what it takes to develop joyful, confident, and capable readers. Nobody knows vocabulary like Freddie Hebert, a longtime expert in literacy development. In today's episode, she talks about her research in vocabulary and a new approach she's taken to understand words and how they're related. You may know Freddie's work from Text Project, a website that provides materials and resources for literacy development. Today, we talk with her about her newest book, Teaching Words and How They Work. It's a must read. Hi, Freddie. Thank you so much for being a guest on today's podcast. Well, I'm delighted to be here and to talk with you about my favorite topic, which is vocabulary. And I know that's your favorite topic, and I'm really interested in getting some insight into why vocabulary, and I know our listeners would love to hear what got you interested in that world. My research for many years had been on what makes text complex. So when we think of the many kids who are struggling to learn to read, even after they've gotten some basic decoding, what is it that prevents them from being highly automatic in their reading? And what I was seeing, especially after the shift in text in the early 1990s, I was seeing just an inordinate number of different words in text. And this is something that Barbara Foreman and her colleagues in Texas were also recognizing. And it's clear when we look at any type of text complexity that it's vocabulary. It's unknown vocabulary that really creates problems. So that's when I began asking, might there be a way to identify what I sometimes call a parsimonious or economical vocabulary curriculum? So could we identify, not the Dolch words, but could we identify words that matter more than other words in terms of instructions? 
words that have high leverage. So that's got what got me started because we've known for um, generations that vocabulary represents your knowledge and knowledge is what determines your level of comprehension. Yeah, so that, that helps us understand why it's important. And um, and so I know that you have been doing lately a different kind of research around vocabulary and what words look like and what, what words mean. So can you talk to us a little bit about this sort of new approach that you've taken? I'd love to. The availability of electronic or digital resources have meant two things for those of us who study vocabulary. First of all, we can have access to thousands upon thousands and thousands of words. I mean, in databases like at Google, there are, you know, billion, billions of words. In my case, I have scanned about 10,000 texts that are used in schools. So I can use those texts as a way to answer different questions. The other aspect of digitization is that people have been able to tag words, to say this word is highly concrete, or this word occurs very late in students' typical conversations and, and language environments. So with the combination of being able to have large numbers of texts to analyze and to do it quickly, keep remembering when the people that um, were responsible for identifying the Dolch words, all of those analyses were done by hand. Right. Oh, my. <laughs> so we can now analyze many texts and on numerous characteristics. So for example, in the text analyzer that I used, it's called the Word Zone Profiler. In you know, a nanosecond, I can get a summary of all the words in a lengthy text. And I can describe those words on about 16 different dimensions. That's interesting. And I can also describe the profile of the words in the text. In other words, I can tell you uh, how the words are distributed in terms of frequency or age of acquisition, which refers to when those words appear in kids' oral language. Or I can tell you what this text looks like in terms of the number of repetitions that kids are going to see on words that are critical. It's mm. a very exciting time to be doing this work because it's work that we couldn't do even 20 years ago quite as efficiently. Yeah. And, and I would imagine with all of those different uh, ways that you're analyzing these texts and the words in the text, this has some sort of implication then for vocabulary instruction. Well, I certainly think it does. I mean, yeah. for, for as long as we've had core reading programs, and that's been um, well over 100 years, there's been this six to eight words a week perspective. Yeah, I remember and, teaching it. <laughs> and exactly how those words were selected was never really clear. And I want to be clear that that uh, strategy is still going on. It hasn't stopped. And it was really um, 
given new life by the tear approach. Because in the tear approach, you were to, um, you know, pick juicy words or academic words, but we were never told that we should make connections across words. So oh, yeah. with these databases that I have, I can actually tell you that in Yonder Mountain, which is a book that might appear in a third grade program, I can tell you about the networks of ideas that are in that text. Because see, my, the words that I analyze are all tagged for what semantic category they belong to. So I can tell you that there are a lot of words that describe people's roles. You know, like the wise one, um, the warrior. There are words that tell you about um, courage. So instead of just teaching single words and kind of doing all these activities with them, in fact, I just reported last week a meta-analysis uh, that Gina Cervetti of the University of Michigan is the primary author. And in that meta-analysis where we looked at the effects of direct instruction of words, the six to eight approach, six to eight words approach, mm -hmm. we found on distal measures, that is on measures beyond the taught words, there were no effects. And get this, each word has was taught on average for 16 minutes. Wow. So because English has so many words, you're not going to get far with that. Yeah. And, uh, and unless you have the most critical words, you know, words that re represent the key ideas in a text, represent the knowledge. So it's it truly is all about knowledge, right? Because mm -hmm. words are concepts and concepts are what knowledge is made up of. So if the six to eight sort of, it, feel, it always felt to me like as a teacher that the vocabulary words I was supposed to be teaching were sort of randomly chosen and didn't have connections to each other. So if that six to eight word approach is not working, what's, a, what's an alternative to that approach? Well, what I've been advocating and um, been implementing in, in some context is the idea that, well, I, I think that there are actually a couple of different ways in which you want to teach vocabulary. So it's not just looking at the individual words, but it's looking at underlying systems. So let me share what those systems are. Great. So one underlying system are the knowledge domains that words belong to. Okay, so in this story that I was talking about, Yonder Mountain, mm -hmm. or um, Ivan the Great, there are particular concepts that are really important. And we now have the capacity through digital tools to actually tell you in a text what those words are. So instead of six to eight words, you know, we might have five or six or seven or eight um, anchor words, but those words are going to be networked to many, many more words. So we're going to, um, you know, support students in having an idea about what, for example, um, is important in a survival story. 
or um, in a story of a child um, feeling like she's really different because she's not musical. We might learn some things about what's defined as music. What are some of the performances, you know, like a recital um, that occurs in an auditorium. What, what I'm saying is you pick these anchor words and you build these bodies of knowledge. I mean, so vocabulary becomes the base for developing knowledge. That's the first important thing. So it's not just little pieces because words connect together. There yeah. are very few words that aren't networked. I mean, a word like the and uh, you know, the de determiners, I mean, they're not really in a network of meaning. Well, sort of, you could say they are, you know, with the and uh, but I'm talking about networks like words around uh, what people wear in stories and how that influences the story or represents some cultural group or how people move. So the ways in which people move tells you a lot about the kind of thing that might happen in the story, how they might respond to something in the story, similarly with communication. So if an author says the character was scheming rather than planning, you've just gotten an insight into what the story is about. So what I'm saying is it's not just, when I say knowledge, it's not just in informational text. I'm saying also the knowledge of stories. Sure. Okay, so that's one of the things that we need to teach. We teach. Can I, can I ask a clarifying question on that? So I think what you're saying is um, sort of knowledge and vocabulary have this, maybe I want to say reciprocal relationship, if you will, that if we teach kids this subset of anchor words, small words that like sort of like synonyms or words that are similar to or different from allows them to learn vocabulary words a little bit faster and better. Would that be right? Well, the, the thing about English language arts is we've often been agnostic in terms of what we've been teaching. But for the kids' experience, they're always learning something. So what I'm attempting to say here is I'm looking for the underlying ideas in this text, not just individual words. So it's a movement from the individual words to what information does that group of words tell you? That makes sense. Okay. That makes sense. <clears throat> so, so that's the most important. It, it's, it's, um, what I've just done is I've parsed about 100,000 um, words from third grade core reading programs where the topics can just jump from one thing to another to another. But once you start looking at these groups of words, you find out that there are some really important ideas. And often those ideas, so let me give you an example of a text here. Great. So this is from a core reading program that was um, Common Core compliant in 2014. And these are the eight words in this program. Examined, peak, fondly, steep, rugged, missed, pausing, and pleated. What do you think the story is about? Wow, I have no idea. <laughs> 
Well, it turns out that this is the Cherokee legend that I've been talking about, Yonder Mountain. Ah. And, and it's connected to a story of the Trail of Tears. So there's some really important ideas here. But if you teach the word um, pleaded, and they they teach it like, claim to teach it in context with a sentence like, you know, um, the the little bird pleaded with its mother for food. That's very different than the notion of the Cherokees pleading with the U.S. soldiers to be able to bury their dead. Yeah, wow. On the Powerful. Trail of Tears. Wow. So what I've done to parse the words in this story is, you know, I've, I've looked at characters. So who's important in these texts? And by the way, there are a lot of proper names that play yeah. into this, right? Mm -hmm. So once we start looking beyond the first 1,000 or 2,000 most frequent words, we see up to 20% of the words being proper names. Wow. And some of them, like the word Cherokee or Native, Americans or U.S. Army, in this particular set of texts is really important. Yeah. Okay, so I pick things that are important. Oh, my goodness, this actually looks a lot like the old story structure we used to talk about. Okay, because there is also context, right? Yeah. So there's a whole set of names around the places that the Trail of Tears occurred on and that there's now a national historic trail. That's part of these texts. But you don't get that when you see these words, rugged, mist, pleading, right? Right. Makes sense. <laughs> I mean, they're, right now, when I look at the characters and the, uh, let me just count this here. So I've got 13 words from these texts associated with, with characters. And I've got another, about 11 words associated with places. And I'm not even halfway through. Wow. So, so you could map, map those out with a... Uh places with all the words that connected to that right and then we can talk about the actions that are taken mm -hmm. you know like there was the removal of the cherokees they marched they stumbled and they pleaded talking about pleading in this context is very different <laughs> than talking about a little bird pleading for you know uh, a worm yeah very very true yeah so <laughs> all together here now i've gotten at least 30 words at least. And I can start adding other words because when you mention synonyms, we can have other words uh, for pleated. So we can bring in a lot of different words. You or know, so, relate that word to something a kid already knows. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so what I'm saying is the first and most important thing right now, and you know, the Reading for Understanding grant if there was one important finding that came out of it, it reiterated that what you know about the content of a text is what's going to influence your comprehension. Mm -hmm. And typically what we've done is we've front-loaded what we think kids need to know. And they aren't developing these knowledge bases. I mean, kids need to know when I come to stories, there are always going to be names for characters. And those are really important. And there are a lot of them. And you, in order to comprehend that text, you have to follow these characters between sentences and between paragraphs to understand the actions that they take. That makes sense to comprehension. Correct. And you have to understand these characters communicate in certain ways. Yeah. And they also act in certain ways. Mm-hmm.
so you're building up a knowledge domain and now we could move to a text that is communicating is is written strictly to communicate a particular body of knowledge like about mummies that's going to be a little bit different but again that that vocabulary underlies what we want you to learn from this yeah so instead of me as the teacher telling you everything you need to know i'm telling you about things that you need to understand about text so that you can begin collecting these networks of ideas right. and i'm actually suggesting that you know there are maps in classrooms where we keep adding to our understanding of different kinds of um, events yep. different kinds of ways of communicating yeah so that makes sense to me i can just sort of I, I can sort of see the setup for this as a teacher to sort of start those circles if you will of of the key ideas but then helping the students extract that information and vocabulary to help them build their own knowledge and their own vocabulary yeah, because it turns out that if I'm teaching six to eight of the words from a text, <clears throat> and I'm thinking of me and Uncle Romy, which is a text that's occurred in a number of different core reading programs, that text has about 680 unique words. Wow. Out of 1,700 words. Okay. In that text, there are about half of those words are likely to be sort of new for third graders or very new for third graders. So if I've chosen as a publisher six to eight words to teach, that means that there are probably, it actually turns out that in every hundred words these kids are reading, there are about seven rare words that you have likely not encountered in text before. Mm. That doesn't mean you can't decode them. Right. You know, like a word like kissed actually turns out to be fairly rare. So what I've been saying is that the basis, it's not just teaching words, it's teaching about underlying structures of knowledge. And it's yeah. not saying we have to have these structures of knowledge in text, but it's understanding that in any text, there are interesting structures of knowledge. So that's the first thing when you ask me about how we teach. Yeah, great. The second is to let kids know that you learned about the underlying orthographic system of English as you were introduced to reading, mm -hmm. the phonological orthographic system. But right. you know, there's a morphological, there are several morphological systems in English and you need to know about those. And when I say there are several, this should be common knowledge to American kids. But you know, English starts out as being an Anglo-Saxon Germanic language. And that language has a lot of little words that get combined into compound words. Mm -hmm. But then we add a French layer onto English because the Normans who spoke a version of French, which is Latin based, came into England in the 11th century. Sure. And for several hundred years, French was the language of the aristocrats. And it is still regarded, the French words in English are still regarded to be more academic, right? Like declared, not just said. Yeah. So the word said would be, um, or say would be um, an Anglo-Saxon word. And oh. each of those systems, like declared and say, 
have different ways of making new words. So declaration, declarative, that's a very different system than, you know, and in fact, with I picked a word that I shouldn't have, but said is in a regular family. <laughs> yep. But we could also look at a word like um, ask, asking. And often those German words create compound words. And the most prolific way of creating new ideas that we have, especially in the digital age, is compounding. So when we invent new things, we compound existing words or give meaning to new words. Give, wow. Excuse me, give meaning to old words, give new meanings to old words. Yeah. So think about mouse pad, right? Right. Yes. Okay. So kids need to understand that there are these different systems that are going to be at work. You know, um, there are very few compounds in the, in the uh, Anglo-Saxon Germanic, excuse me, there are very few um, prefixes and suffixes in the Germanic layer. You know, there, there are things like helpless, Mm -hmm. helpful, unhelpful. That's very different than declaration, declarative. Um, yeah. Which is much more sophisticated, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, that makes so, sense. so you, that's, that's another dimension of knowledge. And if a very small group of words shares meaning in English, that is the morpheme or the meaning unit. If you're going to be very um, generative in your learning to read and your in your ability to take in new words, you've got to keep recognizing these meaning units. Hmm. So, for example, you know there. This is some of the research that I've done that there are these twenty five hundred families of words that accounted for ninety one point five percent of all the words in the Common Core exemplars. Hmm. I actually scanned those. <laughs> <laughs> and from K to college and career ready, it was an average of 91.5%. Hmm. But the deal is each of those 2,500 families has an average of five family members. You know, so you've got to be able to generalize your word meaning. So this uh, idea that we had, I mean, and going back to those um, eight words that I read to you, yeah. um, examined. Well, you need to know about examination. You need to be ready to extend your knowledge. So when I said, you know, we're doing these about 40 words instead of six or eight, we're also teaching you that once you know examined, you know examination, unexamined, and so on. Ah, uh, so knowledge about word parts, in other words, morphology. Right. Yeah. yeah, but not just teaching the word parts by themselves. Mm -hmm. It's teaching it to recognize that there are these shared meaning units and that some words from the Germanic Anglo-Saxon part, like the word peak or steep, are going to make new words like mountain peak. Okay, they're going to come together to create new words. Yeah. So that that's the second part of a curriculum that's so critical. So we've so we've got morphology and just really understanding what that is and why it's important to explicitly teach that to kids and help them understand connections in the context of words that you're learning. Yeah. 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 And then the third thing that we've learned about is I mean English has more words than most languages because of these two systems. 
because of the Germanic and the oh, French system. And the French, yep. Yeah. Yep. Because of that, we have different ways of saying it. Like I can, um, I can plead and I can ask. I can uh, be facile or I can make something easy. Okay, they're usually a more sophisticated way that often appears in higher level text, right? Mm-hmm. But it turns out that especially with the more common words, we use those words in lots of different ways. So a word can take on lots of different meanings over time. And you only have to look at some of the things that we say in the, um, you know, in the computer world to know that, um, you know, we, we give multiple meanings to words. So if we have maybe 400 unique, 400,000 unique meanings in English, unique word forms, excuse me, unique word forms, we've got tons more meanings, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, in this 2,500 word families, there's an average about five different meanings per word. Wow. And and sometimes those words function as, you know, think of a word like milk. Um, it can be a verb. It can be a noun. Mm-hmm. It's used in metaphors. Mm, it's yes. used in um, idioms. I mean, so there are a lot of ways these words get reused. And you have to absolutely have to have a flexibility to be able to read well in English. Yeah. Those so, multiple meaning word, words are those... I mean, especially those words that trip up kids that are acquiring English. Yeah, think of a word that you might, um, I'm thinking of um, uh, Kevin Henke's, um, the story about the kitten and the moon. Um, and the kitten is lapping milk. He laps at the milk. Mm -hmm. Well, think about that word lap. You know, like you've got a laptop. They probably, you know, kids probably know about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, how's a lap, you know, and somebody asks you, you know, you read in your parents, your parents put you in their lap to read. How is that like the word laps? The ocean, the waves lap. Mm -hmm. And this little character is lapping milk. You know, there, I can just give you, you know, thousands of examples like this. A word like bar, B-A-R. And, um, you know, and often these words have been made into verbs or words that were verbs are made into nouns. So there's just a lot of diversity here that I have to be ready for as a reader. And I think you have to experience this in instruction. So those are the three big ideas that I'm talking about in instruction that I think change, it, it moves us very, very, very far from the six to eight, like let's, let's work on the word examine. What does it mean to examine something? What does it mean to, do, to be fond of someone. That's very different than making these connections across words. Hmm. And then looking at the morphological connections and then looking at, you know, how can these words take on several different meanings? Yeah, it sounds like to me uh, a little overwhelming if I was a teacher in a classroom right now listening to this to say, Oh my, that sounds like a lot of work I should be doing with vocabulary. How is it in the world that I can sort of take what I already have and maybe change my approach to vocabulary acquisition to ensure my students are getting at least more of what they should be getting compared to what I was doing before? 
<clears throat> well, I on um, this past Wednesday, um, my book on vocabulary just came out, and it has a subtitle. It's called Teaching Words and How Words Work, but the subtitle has to do with small changes that make big results. And what I'm really emphasizing when I talk to educators is the fact that we need to pick something small to start out with. Mm -hmm. Okay, Like it, we're in so many of our educational initiatives, like the Common Core, we just attempt to just throw things out and just go big time. Oh, for sure. So and, overwhelming. And that doesn't, that doesn't make the long lasting changes. So what I ask teachers to do is what, from what I've talked about, what's one thing you could do as a starting point? And I talk about how could you talk with kids differently about words? How could you help them collect words? What kinds of lessons could you do? And how can you support them in reading that helps them ex apply and extend this word knowledge. But I'm not saying you do it all at once. Great. To me, the most important thing you could do is your attitude as a teacher toward words. So it's not about just these little pieces. Words have networks and connections among each other. And they represent ideas. And that's what we do in school. We work with kids on ideas. So, so the stance toward words cuts across the whole curriculum. You know, there are words that we use in mathematics um, that have common uses in other parts of life. You know, like um, we use the word plus in lots of different kinds of places. There's a group of words, um, if you think of a word like current in science or current in social studies, it can mean something very different than talking right. about whether you're current in regular conversation yeah and and recognizing um, that kids actually have some um, when I bring in a word like model that's a word that's used in mathematics okay when I bring that word in I might have a whole different set of ideas about what model means you know or example or practice or some of the words we use fairly routinely in school mm -hmm. activities so for me if there's one thing that I think educators can start with, it's the stance that I have. It's recognizing that it's not just these little words. And if I have a program where they tell me that these are the little words to teach, mm -hmm. what I'm constantly looking for are words, ways to extend kids' understanding of how those words are connected to other words, both meaning-wise and morphologically. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so I am going to just mention again, that thing that you said about that book that came out, the teaching words and how they work, uh -huh. um, small changes for big vocabulary results. And we'll be sure to link our listeners in the show notes to, uh, where they can purchase that book and just get some more information about not just like vocabularies, you talked about it, but you know, the idea of making those changes in their classroom, making small incremental changes to have some impact. Yeah, I think the thing to keep remembering about words is vocabulary 
is what's really unique about us as human beings. There's, there's other species have ways to communicate, but they don't have ways to record that communication for future generations. And they don't have the wealth of distinctions in ideas that we do. Words are just fundamental who to, who, who, to who we are as people. Yeah. And so a classroom where that's recognized, and that's what this book is about. It's, it's recognizing that um, this is basically what we teach, our ideas. And ideas are represented in words across the content areas. I think it's really exciting. I think that this digital age has brought us new demands for literacy, but it's also given us new insights uh, for how we can support kids. And I think that, I hope at least, that educators are gonna see some of these ideas steadily coming into the materials that they use. That this idea of these you know, six to eight words that you spend 15 minutes a week teaching that moves into here are some ideas that you spend 15 minutes a week teaching, you know, so that where you teach about the connections and so on. I'm not picking on 15 minutes for any reason. You could teach longer or less. That That's not what I'm saying, but that it isn't on the individual word that you're focusing. Yeah. It's on the concept and the idea. Well, that's, that's uh, very interesting. And now that you have, I, I also know that I want to link our listeners to, your website, and can you talk a little bit more about what you have available to them there? Is that the textproject.org? Yeah, I have been um, for the last almost a decade um, the CEO of, of a website called textproject.org where everything on the website is open access, uh, which means it's free. And at the website, there is, um, at the top, there are uh, different uh, places that you can visit. And one of them is student materials. And I have student materials that relate to supporting kids on vocabulary connections. So there are lessons um, in the, um, on the website that can be downloaded. There are also texts for students to read. And those texts um, extend from the very early levels to about um, middle grade. And the intent here is to get students uh, proficient with this core vocabulary that I've talked about, but also ensuring, especially at the early levels, that teachers have some text that can help them with important ideas for kids, ideas that are familiar to them. So when you're teaching kids to read, you always want to start out with words that they already know. I mean, how can you know you've been successful at decoding if you don't know what the word is? So if you're asked to decode the word jug and you don't know what jugs are, mm -hmm. you don't know if you were successful. Right. This was something that um, the senior people in, in the field of reading when I was on working on becoming a nation of readers 
30, over 30 years ago, Jean Shaw and Isabel Beck talked about. Decoding works with things you know about. So I've created some texts called Beginning Reads that are open access, where you've got ideas that get repeated across stories. They're not like some of the leveled texts now that in every single text you have a different set of ideas. As a beginning reader, especially an English language learner, I've got to have some repetition to learn a word. And furthermore, they need to be words and ideas with which I have some familiarity. That is, I have that word in my own language. Mm -hmm. And it actually helps. I mean, there's extensive amount of research in experimental psychology on the role that concreteness plays in learning. So it's going to be easier to learn a word like bus than it is a word like must, M-U-S-T. So these uh, little beginning reads that I have take words that are phonetically regular, like one set of books is about whether you are tra or riding a bus or going in a van, or you know whether you see a truck and different colors of trucks and so on. So we're using, we're supporting kids. I mean, by no way are there sufficient a number of books in that series to support kids in becoming um, fluent with the orthographic system. But I'm trying to model something with those texts. Did, does, that make, does that make sense, Susan? It, yep, it sure does make sense. And we'll make sure that we um, we link that in the show notes too for, I, I, you know, I know a lot of educators are familiar with it, but just wanna make sure that, um, that we get that information out to as many folks as we can. Um, yeah, and I think I, it's important for them to know what the rationale is behind those books. They're not intended ever to be a complete curriculum. Yeah. But I was attempting to model what, you know, evidence shows us needs to happen. You need to have repetition when you're becoming, uh, when you're being introduced to reading. You need to have meaningful text. And you also, it helps if the things are concrete, phonetically regular, you know, and, and, and meaningful and familiar to you. So I wrote this little model set of text to help teachers with that. Yeah, that's really great. Anything we can use as a model to start bringing, you know, bringing that word recognition and the language comprehension together in a way that helps students develop as as proficient readers. So um, yeah, so it's yeah, so the vocabulary doesn't wait till you're older, right? You know, it starts immediately, but we we support you in seeing interesting and familiar things that you actually can can um, access. Yeah, the knowledge builds on knowledge, right? So when you know something exactly. about something, you can build more knowledge from that. Well, um, that is awesome. Freddie, we really appreciate you taking the time um, to chat with us about your passion, which is vocabulary. And like I said, we'll be linking our listeners in the show notes to the resources so that they can run out and buy your brand new book, which is really exciting. Congratulations on that. And by the way, it's short. It's, it's a fairly short book, so I, short, which I like. Short and full of interesting information that's very yeah. relevant. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity, Susan. I hope that I um, have conveyed some of these ideas coherently. We appreciate you being here with us. Thanks so much. Thank you.
We're so grateful to our amazing guests today and to all of you making a difference in the lives of students every single day. Be sure to check the show notes for resource links from today's podcast, and we want to hear your stories and successes. Follow us on Facebook at Science of Reading the Community, or if you're looking to help implement the science of reading, send an email to sormatters at amplify.com. Tell us what guests you think we should book or tell us about the research that really excites you. And be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Susan Lambert.